Before we start, this is going to be a clean episode. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Welcome to the Film Geek Collective. Today we're going to have a clean episode about the Toy Story trilogy. Massive spoilers for Toy Story 1, 2, and 3. We're not going to mention Toy Story 4. Now, without further ado, shout-outs to Tessie Cat, Real Sharks, Ashy Slashy, Mary Amber, That Patrick Guy, Sage by His Grace 72, and also Liz Slade. Now, hopefully you've all seen these three, because these are childhood classics, and even better, because adults can enjoy them too. Alright, now, without further ado, let's begin, shall we? Alright. So, yeah. Entertainment for all ages does not need to be condescending or alienating for adults in the audience. It's just that, it you know, I, I consider... Sorry, it's just that. All ages. I consider the first three Toy Story films to be timeless works of art. And for the sake of this episode, I... Uh, <coughs> of this podcast, I've binged-watched them. Admittedly, I am kind of uh, recording in between films as well, so... Yeah. This is a compilation of Between the Films and After I've Binge-Watched All of Them. That's right, all 276 minutes, that is 4 hours and 36 minutes, including credits. So yeah, enjoy! First of all, one easter egg. It's the same rug as The Shining in Sid's house. When you're looking at the second floor, it's clearly the same rug as the Overlook Hotel. Next, we've got uh, the fact that Joss Whedon wrote at least most of the Sid's dialogue. You can feel you can find similar offbeat humour in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, you can clearly hear Joss, Joss Whedon's voice in a good way. I mean, Sid isn't somebody who is just Joss Whedon in, in disguise. He's his, his, uh, his own being. Now, keep in mind, this is my own interpretation of the trilogy. Without further ado, let's begin. So, Andy playing with his toys in the beginning is essential, because it's what the toys live for. They're essentially actors being controlled by a director, that is, Andy, in the midst of having fun because they want to please the director and have seen him begin to grow. The only true way to grow is through exploration, and playtime is an enactment of fantastical scenarios to let Andy's imagination run wild. While the word director might seem a bit too dictatorial, it's clear that Andy has a great working relationship with all his toys, like any good director, who all trust him with their lives. So yeah, the toys, mor- <clears throat> the toys' mortality is demonstrated later when Sid blows up the soldiers in his yard, introducing higher stakes into a mainly low-stakes franchise. I say low-stakes because it's more interpersonal, you know, that sort of thing. So, the toys finally show their personalities at four minutes, with genuine camaraderie and a bond over their shared experiences, whilst having their own personal lives. They all have their own senses of humour, especially the late Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head, and Wallace Shawn as Rex. Wallace, sorry, Wallace Shawn, you may also know from The Princess Bride. (laughs) Now, where was I? Australia. I'm kidding, I had to put a Princess Bride reference in there somewhere. So yeah, we learn that uh, Slinky's Woody's equivalent of a loyal dog, but more than anything, the toys, while maintaining an individuality, function as a collective of different people with the same goal. You know, they really function together. Their, Their lives would obviously be empty without Andy. And an Easter egg in the background of the scene where Woody is uh, singing the microphone, okay, staff meeting everybody, that that sort of thing. He uh, is actually, there are books behind uh, 
behind Woody that have the names of different Pixar short films like Tin Toy and Nick Knack. In fact, I'm pretty sure Nick Knack was uh, pre-censored. You can search up the original uncensored thing on YouTube. Don't worry. It's, uh, it's fine for everybody either way, I'd say. So, yeah. Basically, that's an Easter egg. And another thing. I think the toys are made a lot more relatable by copying various aspects of human life. Especially with the toys having different personalities. Slinky is loyal, Mr. Potato Head's cynical, Rex is neurotic, Ham acts like a voice of reason, almost, like, should we be doing this? And, and more. Come to think of it, John Ratzenberger, who voices Ham, is like the voice of Pixar itself. <laughs> Early on, at eight minutes, we get our first and foremost existential concern. Could we be replaced? What do we mean? What if, what if, you know, what if we're not good enough? Everybody at some point or another asks that particularly if they're trying to, say, get a job. I also love that simplest eggs are introduced for what presents people will get, while they still tie into a driving a driving theme, doing it in a way even younger children can understand on a subconscious level. False alarms, keeping the suspense up until they think there's no more, giving them a false sense of hope. But also, yeah, this... Because this one's a clean podcast, I reckon kids who are interested in finally getting to analyse films properly and enjoy films on deeper levels can listen to this particular episode. So sorry, adults, if some points are obvious, but, you know, I'm going to try to cater to everyone for this one. I assume that it's mostly an audience of adults listening anyway, but, I'm, you know, the occasional clean episode is just in case. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so... Yeah, I already said that point. Of course, several seconds later, something they didn't anticipate, something that heightens in the tension after that false sense of hope. There's the shadow, and there's Rex knocking the radio over so the batteries fall out before the kids come upstairs. The worst thing that can happen, and it does. The single worst thing. This is the best kind of suspense, even for films for more mature audiences. The event in which a kid pushes Woody off the bed triggers another thing. Dread and jealousy for whatever new present was just put onto the bed. Bewilderment! But then some of his hope is left. Or at least, he has to be strong for the other toys. For they're as worried as he is. This film really is an existential starter lecture for children now, isn't it? Now the tension is heightened and then released with the slow pan from Woody up to Buzz's face. And we contend with a new problem, a deluded toy with high aspirations. Still, Woody secretly has these high aspirations, and he's clearly scared, but definitely jealous. Woody acts like he hasn't having, he is not having any of it, which, when really, Buzz is who he wants to be. The rest of the film, and the franchise for that matter, will be a balance between the impossible standards of what he wants to be and the pragmatic standards of what he actually is and what he needs to be. A leader, a companion, and a friend. His ultimate goal in the film is to learn the value of friendship and not be so jealous when he doesn't need to be. Jealousy in general gets you almost nowhere, basically. And all this before the 17-minute mark of the movie. Efficiency is always key. You know, Woody tries to clear up confusion with Buzz, but to no avail, almost justifying his jealousy. But Woody's quite literally pushed aside, only for the other toys to be equally scared. The toys, in my opinion, are the first to realise that Buzz, in his current form, is an impossible deal of what you want, and are amazed he can achieve so much, whilst secretly also being jealous of him. Unlike Woody, however, they continue to be nothing but polite, and... 
Yeah. One thing I gotta point out is in the deleted scenes for this film, which are on the two disc DVD, I believe, Woody is a lot more of a jerk. He just he 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 makes his movie counterpart look tame. He is just plain old cynical. He is the Grinch to Buzz Lightyear. Even more so than he is in the movie. You can check that out in the deleted scenes section if you get the two disc edition, or maybe you can see them online. Whatever you want, you know? But yeah. <clears throat> now, the second uh, existential crisis. If I'm being replaced, or at least pushed aside, can I attempt to coexist semi peacefully? But then the toys explicitly compare the two. Still, Woody knows Buzz starts as a fake and wants to prove he's fallible. It's a little light bulb that blinks. By the way, younger audiences, if you wonder what a word means, just ask your parents and pause. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Alright, so yeah. Still, Woody knows Buzz starts as a fake, wants to prove he's fallible. It's a little light bulb that blinks. And for those thinking, oh, why isn't this episode explicit? The word I'm searching for, for Woody at this point, I can't say because there's most likely preschool toys present. So I'll settle for him being too hot-headed. Not able to rationalise. Critical thinking and analysis is key and is practised throughout the trilogy. Where did I go wrong? How can I improve? Or sometimes a character doesn't think like that or thinks misguidedly. Woody is clearly somewhat impressed when Buzz, quote-unquote, flies around the room, but then he won't admit it. Next, we have the talented Randy Newman takeover. The lyrics are quite uh, on the nose for the scenes the music are featured in, but they're good songs, uh, and if it inspires younger children to analyse these movies, I say good. I, I say the more knowledge one wants to gain, the better. What we here are about inspiring people to like films, to hopefully even make films that they want to. But moving on, Buzz starts to replace everything, the bedsheets, the posters, everything. Still, the disappointments conveyed through glances and expressions alone. You could watch the scene on mute and was an instrumental of the track and still get the meaning. It does not in any way subtract from the film, and like I said, Randy Newman's incredibly talented, but it would have been even better if the lyrics hinted at something deeper than what we see to tell us more of the story. Small detail, but a sign of Andy's evolution, the N on Woody's boot is backwards, whereas the N on Buzz's boot is forwards. Attention to detail is also everything. Territory's unnecessary, you know, Woody tries to break Buzz's dreams, just bust him. But once he does later on, he needs to balance it again, and I'll get back to that later. Now, I know, sometimes I say I'll get back to this later, and I kind of forget the point, but, you know, that's why we're improving the podcast. But, but back to the point we were at. I can't bear to look again, wails Rex. But then, it's Buzz's turn to face the fact he's mortal. He knows already but has to face it firsthand, yet still doesn't believe it. Two minor notes at 27 and a half minutes, according to Disney+. Plus. You can vaguely hear the Indiana Jones theme as the globe rolls after him like the boulder does, and the Wilhelm scream as he falls out the window. I can't quite imitate it, but it's like... Aah! No, no, just search the Wilhelm scream up after the podcast. Wilhelm, W-I-L-H-E-L-M, that is. Now, yeah... <laughs> So, where was I? Speaking of that, breaking point. Woody fails as a leader. His jealousy gets the best of him in what's initially a calculated move. Then, an quote-unquote 
accident. Although, Bo Peep is the only one who, one of the only ones who really believes him, her and Slinky that is. Woody still holds a position as leader because the toys know subconsciously Buzz isn't truly the leader. I mean, no one really is. Woody's the closest thing we've got to a leader. Le- <clears throat> leader. Yes, enunciation on my part. So, let's review. Woody goes from in control to a fish out of water to bitter because he doesn't know where he belongs, amplified by another big heightening of stakes. Buzz and Woody at the petrol station as Andy drives off and doesn't seem to notice him, all because Andy's excited about Buzz instead. Two rivals forced to work together, both afraid of rejection, though Buzz does not seem to realise it in the same way. When Woody forces Buzz to face it, there's still a disbelief. Both Buzz and Woody don't understand the situation or each other, leading to Buzz basically describing himself through referring to Woody. You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. This line, for some reason, was reused by Disney themselves in Tim Allen's Santa Claus 2. Now, just a minor thing that's been bugging me, but does not ruin the film's story. When Woody is in Sid's house later, and he imitates the voice of Sid's mother calling Sid's sister downstairs, she hears him as if he's a human, but back where we are, when Woody is screaming at Pizza Planet, no one hears him? Again, just a just a bit of a nitpick. This is still an absolutely five star film. If there was a if there was a sixth star, okay, I would rate it six because I love this trilogy. I love it. These are some of my favorite films. We have our first bonding experience next, which eventually had to come. You know, Buzz in a burger wrapper, and Woody in a cup. As Buzz loves Woody's thinking on the spot. The beginning of a friendship, the beginning of a bond, even if partially accidental and partially deceitful, something that ends up putting them partially at ease. That is until Buzz's deluded sabotage. Nice transition when it zooms into Sid's shirt when he gets uh, Buzz and Woody with the claw. Let's not forget the aliens with their claw. Yeah, that probably wasn't a very good impression, but you get the idea. So yeah, zooming into Sid's shirt, you know, the skull kind of stays on screen while it uh, fades to the house and that's called a crossfade when you know one thing kind of stays on the screen and another doesn't the the older members who are listening to pod- these podcasts will know apocalypse now and the way it opens with the trees blowing up from helicopters and uh you know you kind of sort of see Martin Sheen on the ground and you kind of sort of see the fan but you can still see the jungle through it. It's uh, that sort of shot. It's what we call cross fading. So yeah that's a little technical thing for you guys. Restless experimentation will get you there. (laughs) Yeah so yeah it even Buzz loves what he's thinking on the spot even if partially accidental and partially deceitful but you know (coughs) Oh, man. Okay. But, yeah. That is, until Buzz's deluded sabotage, they are partially at ease. Nice transition when it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said that. So, things get worse and worse, making whatever the previous conflict is look quaint put into into perspective. It's a good way to structure any film. Not only is an alien mauled, the door is locked and there's sinister threats about... 
I mean, yeah, I had a better word for that. Let me try again. There's sinister threats afoot. Again, Woody tries to stay strong like he did when he met Buzz. But he's scared for a different reason now. You gotta be scared for multiple reasons. They're cannibals! Buzz mentions of the toys made of various parts. See, parents? Cannibals were mentioned in a children's film. I can hear the bubble wrap being wrapped around by paranoid parents. <laughs> eh... But uh, Buzz and Woody each have their own character arcs, but let's take a quick look at the others throughout the film. Mr. Potato Head, merely cynical and snarky, but then in disbelief and anger for most of the film. However, he gets his wish at the end of Mrs. Potato Head and lightens up a little bit, whilst not sacrificing his trademark Don Rickles cynicism. Rex goes from being scared of things to accepting challenges to rescue Buzz and Woody. See. Even as minor characters have a small amount of screen time, they still have basic arcs. Not every one of the dozens of toys gets an arc, but we still have a subtle B-plot. Now, Buzz and Woody fight it out for leadership, and each get equal turns, fighting for their life. But then, but then Buzz witnesses something that shatters him. Something that brings him to his knees as he hides from Sid's dog after a TV's left on. You can see in his face the wonder of someone inspired to fulfill their destiny, then shock after the ad states not a flying toy and shows him many copies in Al's toy barn, leading the way to the most powerful sequence of the film. Buzz takes a fall and severs his left arm as he tries to fly, sending him into his own existential crisis. Woody realises he's gone too far in the opposite direction and has to inspire Buzz again. And, yeah... It's a very uh, sad scene. You know, you really get to feel for him. I'm not even... You know, the Randy Newman thing the that I mentioned earlier, that, that does not ruin it. It's just such a powerful moment, you know. But yeah, on to other things. A small detail when Mr. Potato Head and Ham are playing Battleship a bit after this, I quite like. You know, when Mr. Potato Head takes off his nose, he actually uh, sounds nasal, like this. <clears throat> Of course, there are two dogs that help the character arcs along. The obvious one is Slinky being loyal to Woody, but what about Sid's dog, Spud? Were it not for Spud, Buzz would not stumble upon the realisation he needed needed, <coughs> needed to. If it weren't for Spud, Woody and Buzz would still be lost, both from Andy's other toys and lost from a sense of purpose and lost from a common bonding experience. But then again, things have to get worse. Like when Buzz throws his own severed arm and Woody has to disguise it. But he accidentally takes down entirely from behind the window. Now's the turning point. Buzz has to slowly believe in himself and they have to try to get the toys to trust him. Oh, and <laughs> let me make this point again, alright? When the toys fix Buzz Lightyear up, you know, the scary toys that Sid has. Like the, the Barbie legs with the hook and the, and the baby with a pirate eye. The word cannibals is said again by Woody. Twice. Twice. He even knows, I thought you were going to eat my friend. I mean, he even says that clear as day. Those who are oversensitive, leave the bubble wrap where I can pop it and don't condescend to your children. Just be honest and they'll grow up better. In fact, the toy's existence is very sheltered and until Buzz comes along. And then 
It's nothing but honesty, for better or worse, making everyone into better people. You can have positive experiences, you can have negative experiences, but it will make you into a better person with the right guidance. Now, if that doesn't persuade you, I do not know what will, alright? Not a continuity error, but very slight foreshadowing. Woody is under the blue crate when he's trying to hide from Sid. It cuts to Sid, and that's when Sid comes over. There's nothing you can see through the crate before Sid lift, lifts it and Woody hides on the top. Completely out of sight. Just a little bit of foreshadowing I like. Oh, and let me remind you, I'll be spoiling 1, 2, and 3 on possibly this episode, and if this goes too long, then I'm going to split it into multiple parts. Then, yeah, it's going to be examining the whole trilogy. So, yeah. <clears throat> so, here goes. With my... With not my theory, but kind of my theory. But it's borrowing from another theory. Andy holds a red hat at roughly 56 minutes. That is the time according to Disney+. Plus. Could that be foreshadowing for Jesse and Toy Story 2, I wonder? And does that confirm Andy's mother is Jesse's former owner? Hmm. So, back to the first one and Woody in the crate after Sid leaves. You know, Woody has actually an improvised interrogation handbook behind him in that crate. I mean, how troubled is Sid? And now that Buzz is strapped to an explosive rocket, what's going to happen? Ah! Finally, though, Woody admits to Buzz he's too cool. I mean... What chance does a toy like me have against a Buzz Lightyear action figure? And I'm the one that should be strapped to that rocket. It's at 58 to 60 minutes when Buzz finally makes friends with Woody properly. Now it's the others they gotta please. You can tell Joss Whedon's had his hands on this script when Sid, Sid, <coughs> Sid says in his sleep, I wanna ride the pony. But other than that, we get the biggest stakes of the film. Will they get back to Andy's house? Will they get past the dog, Spud? Or is it Scud? I think it's Spud. Will they finally escape and reconcile with everyone? Can Woody save Buzz and stop himself from suffering survivor's guilt? It all comes down to these. It all comes down to realizing purpose and not being complacent. One of the best things about Sid is that apart from toy destruction, he's a normal kid with sibling rivalry and a general desire to have fun, as twisted as it is, yet he's still just a danger for the toys. But still, first there's the realisation where Sid knows the toys are alive, and there's one immediately after that where Sid exclaims, The toys, they're alive! Before Hannah takes a glimpse and smiles at her doll, before using it to scare Sid. <laughs> now to take care of the toys' trust and ultimately Buzz's depression. The rocket is lit, letting Buzz quote-unquote fly. The ultimate thematic way to achieve the goal of getting into the truck and then Andy's car. The toys see him redeemed as he comes back with Buzz and the remote control car. Great continuity, by the way, as the whole stays in Woody's head. When Mrs. Potato Head is said to have arrived, we even get a little other Easter egg. Mr. Spell saying hubba hubba in the background. <laughs> and then... Finally, we get to see a rare moment of idealism in the old potato head, his character like I mentioned earlier. In a sort of moment of duality, Buzz is almost jealous, but then isn't subverting the duality. This is a great first chapter, but nothing compared to what comes next. So basically, the outline of the three films, I'd say, it's a metaphor for life. The first movie is the blissful existence overthrown for the sake of questioning purpose realizing purpose and not being complacent. 
The second movie is a deeper examination of questioning purpose, but also trying to keep your identity intact. And the third movie, finally, is expanding on the second movie's questions of what your ultimate destiny is. This one is all about legacy. So yeah. Alrighty then. So, yeah. Between this recording and the next part of the podcast, I will have watched Toy Story 2 and made my notes. And, yeah. If Toy Story 2 or this podcast goes over time, I'll have to continue it next time, okay? So, yeah. Just hang in there for the next uh, few episodes, most likely. Or the next episode or whatever. Alright? Well, yeah. I'm off to watch it and I'll be back with info. Alright, I've just come back from watching Toy Story 2 on Disney+, and now I'm going to go into it, alright? So... <clears throat> the sequel sees Buzz make fun of himself from the beginning while still taking himself seriously. The opening scene shows Buzz's fictional counterpart saying, much like his introduction in the first film, there seems to be no sign of intelligent life anywhere. But finally, Rex, who's playing this Buzz Lightyear video game, gets to be the ideal form of Buzz Lightyear, something the toys were initially jealous of in the first. It's a form of wish fulfillment. Now, a minor detail I like. When Buzz reaches the makeshift bridge of hovering circles to find the battery that says Zerg's power, the opening of Also Sprak Zarathustra plays the low hum before he steps up on the hovering circles and it goes Excellent touch that, you know, that's before he falls and gets back up, obviously. Buzz is defeated in-game, almost a mirror of what happened to his spirit. Then we immediately see the confident, real-life Buzz and how far he's come. Woody's shown again, sans hole in the head. You know, the forehead hole from the last film from the burn and the torch. And I was wondering why that was missing, you know? Also, from 6 minutes 30 seconds to 6 minutes 35 seconds in the movie, you can, if you listen carefully, hear some bars of When She Loved Me as Woody looks under his boot. I neglected to mention Bo Peep, but she's another consistent voice of reason for Woody, but is a minor character in these two. Here we have the third dog of the franchise, Buster, a name we did not know in the last one, but he's somewhere between Spud and Slinky. Buster has trained... Buster has been trained quite well by Woody, and that dog looks quite realistic compared to Spud. How... I mean, my, 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 how animation can improve in four years. Four years. I mean, wow. Consider Toy Story 1 was the first computer-generated film to uh, come out in 1995. There was a bit of experimentation before The Abyss in 89, Terminator 2 in 91, and Jurassic Park in 93. All live-action films with CG bits in it. Yeah, but, you know, that sort of thing. So, yeah, where was I? In the playtimes in this movie, Woody and Buzz are now on equal footing, which is great. Not forgetting the character development, that's an obvious point. You know, even as Woody's arm is partially torn away, another thing to face, you can adjust to life with a physical disability or any kind of any kind of disability. You know, it doesn't make you unworthy in the slightest, even though Woody has that nightmare where he falls through cards. Bit reminiscent of a certain scene in Vertigo, actually. There's a fantastic low angle as he falls out of Andy's grasp. Interesting also that the form of toy that pulls him into the bin is what he encountered in Sid's house. Wheezy the penguin is encountered on the top shelf of Andy's bedroom, voicing a concern that will echo throughout the movie and the franchise. What's the point of prolonging the inevitable? We're all just one stitch away from here to there. 
Wheezy goes, but Woody doesn't. Woody tries to save him from such a fate. Hey, it's not suicide, it's a rescue, Rex says as Wheezy is rescued. All the toys are clearly afraid now of their leader missing, a sign of how close they've become. As Woody is stolen by Al from what turns out to be Al's toy barn, or L-Z-T-Y-B-R-N, as Mr. Speak says, from the first movie, (laughs) we get another villain who is merely human, but an obvious danger to the toys. He's more of an existential threat than Sid, however. Oh, and when Al walks with Woody through the door, the door to his business it says no children allowed and every time i saw this scene as a child i just thought haha newman i mean al we're going in there anyway so back to the kidnapping as the toys explicitly call it it's now buzz's turn to rescue woody in this one a favor returned al drives all the way to work read across the road but that's nothing compared to our new surrounding environment it's strange but hey it's a kind of home Kelsey Grammer, with his rich voice, plays the prospector, and along with Jesse, they introduce Woody to a whole world of merchandising and his television show. Woody gets to see he already has a legacy even in Life magazine, and a black and white TV show with puppets, called Woody's Roundup. Bit of an easter egg here, by the way. Ham flicks through the channels and various Pixar short films are seen in their original form this time. You know, I'm pretty sure that uh, Luxo Jr. is there. If you're wondering who... Is it Luxo? Is it Luxo? Whatever, but... That's basically the lamp that you see in the Pixar logo. The short film concerns a mother lamp and a, I think it's a sun lamp. You know, you can apply any gender to them, really. But it's the smaller lamp that's uh, that's hopping and that's... You know, they're hopping around and they have a new ball and it squishes the ball. Okay. And yeah does the same thing hopping through the logo to crush the eye. <laughs> but yeah. So anyway, I thought I'd just mention that as a little thing. You barely see that for a split second in Toy Story 2, but hey, it's an Easter egg still. <sighs> so yeah. Oh, and another Seinfeld voice here. Not only is Wayne Knight, who plays Newman, in here as Al himself, but we have Estelle Harris, George's George's mother, as Mr. Potato... Sorry, Mrs. Potato Head. I nearly said Mr. I'm sorry. But back to uh, Woody's Roundup, a show abruptly cancelled for the space age. A parallel acknowledged to Buzz and Woody in the first one, and characters who have adjusted, except the prospector later in the climax. But then I always wanted to know how the cliffhanger ended. Might have been as predictable as Batman from the 1960s, but I'd watch a whole show of that. When Woody reveals he has an owner, he shocks the others who don't. Jesse starts hyperventilating, a foreshadowing to a fantastic sequence which I'll get to later. The prospector tries to manipulate Woody into going to a museum in Japan with them, and without them, Jesse goes to storage, which is why she panics. She hyperventilates. Sacrifices must be made. That's a more subtle theme of the film. Hard experiences make you a better person as well, like I uh, half-jokingly mentioned for the first one. Jesse is incredibly bitter about owners, and the prospector has never been owned. He's mint in the box, never opened, as fans of the film, who I'm assuming are listening, will know. Unfortunately, when Al comes in, Woody's arm is completely separated, complete with a 1970s crash zoom reveal a la Kill Bill. Crash zoom! The prospector then appears a little bit concerned, even. Buzz, meanwhile, gives a motivational speech to the toys going to find Woody, and boy, are they in for a shock. Note that Disney Plus, even here in Australia, 
has the USA version. You can tell because behind him in the worldwide release, a globe appears behind him with different music, whereas in the USA version, we see an American flag instead and hear the end of the national anthem. I think it's the Home of the Brave segment. Now, we get a segment also. We get a sequence where Woody and Bullseye finally bond, which is interrupted by Jesse and the Prospector, turning the TV on and waking Al up after Woody tries to retrieve his arm. He's initially successful, but Al takes it instead. This all starts an argument between Woody and Jesse, culminating in an- another Andy mention that just sets Jesse off. <coughs> then... We get Buzz chopping through leaves, which, (laughs) let's face it, multiple scenes in this film remind me of the outtake reel at the end. They have to cross the road and repeat something from the original on a bigger scale. Cars crash into each other, this time not because of a dog, but because of them travelling in cones. It's like a running gag for the first two, and running gags can be great, let's be honest. But one of my favourite scenes of the film comes up. Woody is being fixed by an old man who fixes toys, who says... You can't rush art. That's one of our mission statements, because it's very true. The best art comes from deep within, and yes, it takes time. Don't rush it too much, but let your creative process flow at your speed. So, during the second segment where Woody's being fixed by the old man, the Andy name is painted over, indicating a forced loss of identity, fitting in with the existential vibe of the franchise. The old man says, it's for display only. You handle him too much, he's not going to last. You can tell I've scripted most of this, but I try to do the best delivery I can, basically. I've scripted it because I just have a lot to say, and improvising can take me way too off track, so yeah, let's continue. A good transition here, Al says, he's just like, new! And the sign that says new appears in the next scene. Good sense of scale in this scene, this next scene that is, on two occasions. One where Buzz, real Buzz, is at the bottom of the screen looking at hundreds, if not thousands, of different Buzz Lightyear figures. And the second, in a repeat of the first film, Buzz looks up at the display cabinet to a new Buzz Lightyear with the same slow pan from between his legs to zooming out and then panning upward to his head with the dread that Woody had. That and the second Buzz is deluded. Tell me I wasn't this deluded, original Buzz said. On the search for Buzz, who was missing in the Buzz Lightyear aisle, the other toys with Buzz looked through the Barbie aisle. Barbie wasn't available in the first movie because Mattel didn't want Disney or Pixar using her in the film. But after the film was a success, she got to be in the sequels. The theme of being replaced continues here, when real Buzz is taken over by fake Buzz in the group. It does not spend too much time with Buzz, but he's obviously going through the same thing. Now, let's go back to comparing the first and second for a minute. Jessie speaks before her flashback. Even though you're not moving, you feel like you're alive because that's how he sees you. Let me rephrase my director thing from earlier. It was a metaphor. He's only, Andy's only the director for the story and the uh, actors, as I like to call them, go along. They willingly go along, much like an actor to a play, to play their part, to please their audience. And the director and their audience is Andy. Same thing with Jesse and Emily. In the second film's most powerful sequence, man, is it powerful. If you're a person who cries easily in movies, you will cause flooding in your home. Again, spoilers for the entire trilogy for this episode. 
Basically, it's a foreshadowing of Woody's journey entirely in this trilogy. Loyal to a fault to one child, trends come and go. And eventually, Andy leaves, leaves his toys behind to another person. In Emily's case, it's to a donation box. Jesse compares it to your whole world being there. I think of that as the whole world you knew disappearing before you and causing you intense emotional trauma. And so the question remains for Woody. Mortal or immortal? A short lifespan with a child or a long-term lifespan in a museum, letting many generations adore you? This is a musical sequence where Pixar has improved. The lyrics are not as on the nose, and mostly it lets the visuals do the talking, with a slow ballad to match it. Two to three minutes where the audience slows down and mourns the past before having to think about their future. But also kudos to the ingenious inventiveness of the Pixar team for combining comedy, drama and thrills into a single film, letting the next scene being two rock'em sock'em robots uh, fighting. He was talking to me! No, he was talking to me! <laughs> and then the real Buzz, attempting to open the automatic doors in an elaborate way to chase down Owl. You know, I might have missed a few scenes here and there, but I'm getting the important gist of it, you know? All this is going to lead to a confrontation between the old and the new. But in a different way. New toys, that is the Prospector Gang and old toys. Kind of like a generation thing, I guess? Woody doesn't have a guide because the toys aren't there yet, and is about to make a colossal mistake being in a museum. It's the coward's way out. The Woody's Roundup Gang being together is much like old friends hanging out, but Woody clearly sees too much into it. While they have a good time, Buzz and the gang mistake the play fighting as torture. Mr. Potato Head even says torture! Shock horror! Get the bubble wrap! Ah! But seriously though, lighten up. <laughs> Another variation on a familiar gag. Old Buzz opens new Buzz's helmet and chokes him like what he does to Buzz. <laughs> but then seriously, <clears throat> Buzz tries to bring Woody to his senses with the same You are a toy! An absolutely great comeback in both circumstances. Ultimately, Woody acts like Buzz did in this same situation. Ironically, his television counterpart plays You've Got a Friend in Me, signalling his brainwashing but then his final coming to his senses, making it wholly unironic. Also, it turns out Andy was under the paint all along, like Andy was inside the soul the entire time, inside his soul, and his identity is regained. And it turns out from earlier, Prospector was the one who turned the TV on, it turns out. We thought Jesse might have, if the boot fits. <laughs> but still, we understand his motivation as a bad guy, ultimately. He wants to be immortal. When people want to live forever, they'll do anything. But living forever comes at the price of being way too jaded. You can understand his desire, but not agree with it at the same time. That's especially helpful for younger audiences starting to get into film analysis and that sort of thing. And I hope you're really liking this. I hope you're inspired to do something with it. Now, moving on. New Buzz never snaps out of his delusion, m making it a what-if version of Buzz. Finding out Zerg is his father. Parody is complete with it. <clears throat> completely within fair use too. And I can tell that's the same pizza plant truck. Note the aliens only have less than five minutes each in each of the films. I think, but they're memorable, showing that a little goes a long way. In this case, they're in a car chase unlike any other. I mean, toys driving a car. Where else can you see such a thing? 
The set piece is a genius. An animation allows a bit more surreality in the camera angles in some scenes of this film, like when Woody's arm is stitched on. We see from the perspective of the stump before the arm covers the camera. Also, a nice Chekhov's gun as Buzz and company attempt to find the Roundup gang in a green case, but it's the wrong one, filled with camera flash material. This is ultimately used against the prospector. Woody then ends up adjusting to playtime and wanting to make the most of it, which due to the prospector's betrayal, he persuades Jesse to embrace playtime again. This is a very minor Chekhov's gun, but as they say, if you introduce something, you better use it, even in simple but powerful stories. But the final stakes here are a possible trip to Japan, even if completely unintended. Woody's roundup is brought back metaphorically to let Jesse and Woody find out what the cliffhanger ended with. And it's a good ending. Predictable, but uh, satisfying. They go home and Andy's glad to see Woody fixed and the toy's back and other new toys Jesse gets along with change, even a man of the space age. Buzz Lightyear. You know, when Buzz's wings pop up, I laugh every time. And then big band music is performed by someone called Robert Goulet, I think it's pronounced, doing the singing voice for Wheezy rather than his voice actor, Joe Ramt. Sadly, Joe Ramt, R-A-N-F-T, I'm trying to pronounce that right, but sadly he died in 2006. So that's why in the third movie, Wheezy is sold off. He was very good in his limited screen time and may he rest in peace. On another note, the outtakes for this movie are hilarious. I must watch the credits every time because of them. To think original theatrical screenings, at least in the initial months, did not include the outtakes is inexplicable. They're a huge part of the film for me. They got rid of one of Kelsey Grammer's outtakes in recent versions due to the current climate. Adults will probably know what I mean. If you don't, you can search it up. But the film's otherwise intact. And ultimately, this one is about trying to keep your identity intact, in addition to questioning purpose. And a little bit about legacy, which will be explored in the third movie. Now, like Barbie says at the very end, bye-bye, bye-bye now, bye-bye. Kidding, kidding. Let's move on to the third movie now, okay? I'm going to watch the third movie and come back with my ultimate analysis. I will be making notes like I did with the second one, and this will make the episode even more episodic considering it's basically three acts, but I hope you guys want to stick around for stuff, because it's coming. All right, I'm going to publish all this tonight. All right, see you after the movie. Look, I have always loved this trilogy, always have, always will, and I've just rewatched Toy Story 3, which by far is still the best movie, in my opinion, of any of them, okay? So yeah, let me go through the uh, third film now. The beginning is another reenactment, not of a video game, but of playtime in the first in the first movie, just extended a bit, now with Mrs. Potato Head, Jesse and Bullseye, oh, and troll dolls and more dialogue and a nuclear explosion of monkeys, transitioning nicely to young Andy growing up over time. And the familiar theme song You've Got a Friend in Me. But, you know, that when they're watching a film together or the toys, you can actually hear another Wilhelm scream, that sound effect I told you about when Buzz falls out the window in the first one. Note the Buzz Lightyear bedsheets are still there, but Woody still seems content. So flash to the present and they deliberately ring Andy's phone again to check the toy box. Then Woody seems to be about to speak, but can't. Sid knew, but Andy doesn't. However, the soldiers decide to desert, worrying the group again. Why the soldiers? Why did they desert? Who knows? Would Andy care about him? So yeah, the group finally have the conversation. The conversation about existentialism. What's our legacy? 
What do we mean? What makes us worthy? By what standard is it that we've achieved something? Existential Thinking 101. When Molly donates her Barbie doll, that's the only time I have ever felt sorry for Barbie. Also, Toy Story 3 is by far the single best Barbie movie by a very, very, very long shot. And trust me, I had to sit through a fair few when I was younger. (laughs) Andy has got to find out what the toys mean to him. Of course, they think it's a nightmare coming true, the trash bag, and that just begins the blame and the shaming and the downhill spiral into, ironically, Sunnyside daycare, you know? (laughs) Well, yeah, life has definitely changed for him, even the smaller things like uh, Buster being old and not energetic anymore. There's a little bit of clever humour I really likes during this scene. Rex asks, Should we be... Should we... Sorry. Should we be hysterical? And Buzz just says, Maybe, but not right now. (laughs) Continuing the hysteria, Why does Andy's mother not hear yelling if Woody fooled Hannah two movies ago? Just something I want to point out again, you know? In fact, if you're looking for Bonnie's first appearance... How did I not connect these before? I'm supposed to do these things, remember? <laughs> Bonnie's first scene at 19 minutes 55 seconds with a monkey toy. Two characters that end up being important. Aliens and the claw come up in the next scene. You know a great foreshadowing for the ending. Uh, yeah, big spoilers for all three movies, obviously. I keep repeating that just in case. But, you know, Sunnyside's like a paradise where you're not heartbroken. But isn't it better to feel something rather than go numb through life? Although it's tempting to just be in the happy place, to visit, well, a place where you can hear the voice of the awesome Michael Keaton. (laughs) What tempts the toys, however, includes massages, dream houses, new toys, and dry humour. Like when they're walking through the bathroom and Lotso Huggin Bear says to Mr. Potato Head, watch out for bottles. (laughs) Sunnyside really is heaven and hell in one place. At 25 minutes, there are two chairs behind a shocked Woody that looked like shocked faces. That just me? I mean, you can you can watch the movie again and uh, search it up yourself, maybe. But, yeah, they kind of have those faces on. Anyway, but this is the stage of life that challenges toys the most. Not only emotionally, but with toddlers who bash the toys around. Would frighten any germaphobe. I'm pretty sure Mr. Potato Head's eye ends up a kid's nose at one point. Woody doesn't let the toys forget Andy is their owner, not anyone else. But, you know, Buzz and the other toys want to try something else entirely. Woody, to me, wants to so desperately hold on to the past. But even Jesse wants to adapt to the future, even willing to part with Woody at this point. Excellent transition, by the way, when a cart seems to make Woody disappear, but he holds on under it, much like Sid holding the crate. Woody runs inadvertently, however, into another form of change. One of the main themes is change, in addition to legacy. And legacy is about a balance of change and adapting things so you you can have some things be the same. Also, the so-called playtime, the disastrous one, has a great moment, where Buzz gets to look out of the window and see the more gentle style of play, before he's dragged back in, kicking and screaming. That can make a great metaphor for change, even if I am over-analyzing everything. It's better to overanalyze than underanalyze. I embrace every bit of knowledge I can get. There is no such thing as a bad day to analyze films to me. I think and breathe film. So yeah, next we have Mr. Pricklepants, played by Timothy Dalton. Buttercup, played by Jeff Garland. Trixie, played by Kristen Schaal, who's also on the awesome Bojack Horseman. Go see Bojack Horseman if you have a Netflix account. Of course, not for kids, though. Like, not for, like, not for anyone under teens, at least. Um, you know, that, 
And also Dully, Bonnie Hunt. You know, that's going to add to the characters you have to keep track of. That's quite a lot for a kid film. Let's see, we've got Lotso, Big Baby, Barbie, Ken, Stretch, Mr. Pricklepants, Buttercup, Trixie, Dolly, Woody, Butters, Rex, Ham, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head, The Three Peas, Molly, Andy, Bonnie, Bonnie's mother, Andy's mother, Emily, Chunk, Twitch, etc. Yada, yada, yada. That's at least 24 characters there. You know, continuing the series' inventiveness, Buzz gets to have a fundamental change in personality due to a change to demo mode, nicely experimenting with what would happen had he never changed and creating an interesting dynamic. Layers of change, you know, keep piling on top of each other, change after change, and you just have to adapt and deal with it, bit, bit like real life, really. Lotso says Buzz has the initiative and leadership, something which Lotso lacks. When he temporarily makes Buzz a leader of his destiny, and then takes away that power when he requests the others come to the butterfly room with him. The better room. Lotso shows what happens if you're a control freak. If you think about it, Lotso's the bad side of Jesse personified. Late in the movie, we find out Bonnie lost him on... No, sorry. So, I put the wrong name here. We find out... No, not Bonnie. Not Bonnie. We find out Daisy lost him on a car trip, and he became bitter ever since. With a perpetually sunny exterior... When they change Buzz's batteries, they are B&L alkaline, that is by and large from Wally, a film that Pixar made two years earlier. And another plot hole, when Mrs. Potato Head confronts Lotso in the daycare room, she stops speaking when her lips are taken, but Mr. Potato Head can still speak with disembodied lips. If Mrs. Potato Head spoke with her disembodied lips because they're all red and stuff, it could make a great homage to, say, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Just saying. Also, the Cool Hands Luke reference comes in when Buzz is in demo mode and says, Any deviants spend the night in the box. I love that they included a reference to Cool Hands Luke in there. I quite like that film. I think I mentioned it on some past episodes. But yeah, go see it if you haven't. Totally worth checking out. Um, For Australians out there, Cool Hands Luke also has the Nine News theme at one point, before there was even Nine News. <laughs> So, yeah, I mentioned earlier why Lotso was left behind, which a clown named Chuckles narrates. Lotso tried not to give up, but he'd been replaced. He felt betrayed. Returning now would be suicide, says Mr. Pricklepants, all because of the deceptive Lotso. At least at Andy's place, the toys would not feel like captives. Woody is ultimately selfless to save everyone that matters to him, busting every toy out of the daycare, all for the chance to see Andy one last time. If that isn't dedication to your long-time companion, I don't know what is. A dark drama, a thriller, almost entirely character-based and yet suitable for everybody. You know, it's suitable for everybody, and it was even nominated that year for Best Adapted Screenplay. And in its ori- when the original came out in 1995, the following year it was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, but that went to the usual suspects that year. And I'm pretty sure that the other one ended up going to, hmm, gee, let's see, I don't know, someone less worthy? (laughs) Nah, I'm kidding. Whoever won, it's probably good, but let's see. Oh, there you have it. The Social Network wins over Toy Story 3. Why? Sheesh. Although I'm surprised it was ever nominated for a screenplay thing, considering how animated films are relegated to their own award category. But anyway, you know, Woody's ultimately selfless. And how about that? 
Mr. Potato Head and El Tortilla walk into a daycare. And he's really a Picasso painting. Would Ham get it, that uncultured swine? I bet Ham would not get it. (laughs) That uncultured swine. Not only is there evil buzz, there's also Spanish buzz. Three variations in one movie. Ultimately, Woody's legacy is questioned by himself and Lotso. Lotso is a guy who holds a lot of grudges. He still holds a grudge and takes it out on everybody. He's, I mentioned Jesse earlier in relation to him. He's Jesse if he continued to be completely cynical in Toy Story 2. He's a nastier, darker version of the Prospector. And at least the Prospector had ideals with some morals in him, no matter how misguided. Any any morals Lotso has are fake, including but not limited to when Buzz saves Lotso from the trash pile. The fact that toys make us question existential things means you can make a story as simple as two people sitting at a table and talking and have many questions answered. Maybe it's a bit of night for them, who knows? I'm pretty sure one movie did do that, but you can have movies with just conversations, like the Before trilogy. You know, one I still got to see myself is My Dinner with Andre with Wallace Shawn. Wallace Shawn plays Rex in all three of these films, actually. But yeah, but then the most intense climax in any family movie, and I'm counting every family movie I've seen, including the 1980s. This climax includes the ultimate example of false hope. Enough lava to erupt from from a volcano. To prove Lotso is truly corrupt, he does not push the emergency stop button, leaving every toy to accept certain death after all they've been through, closing their eyes, holding hands, everything. But the claw decides who stays and who goes. A redemption for being nothing but honest through all this time. I'm certain the man who takes out the trash is Sid. He speaks in a similar fashion in everything. And goes, beep, 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 beep. Ultimately, Woody writes down an address on a notepad. Very easy to miss, but I freeze-framed it for you and read what it said. It says 1225 Sycamore, where Bonnie lives. I'm also certain Ham doesn't keep all your money safe. Sorry, Andy. You remember that moment in Toy Story 2 where he accidentally loses money down the elevator shaft? Yeah, I'm surprised Andy didn't. Andy did not notice the absence of some of his money. Does he count? Does he even do finance? <laughs> I'm I'm not picking on these films. These films are legitimately masterpieces. It's just, you know, even masterpieces have these little flaws, you know? And finally, the ultimate destination. The toys have had their time, and now it's time to let another person enjoy them. You can see in Andy's eyes that he absolutely regrets letting Woody go, but he feels he'll have a better future. Sacrifices. And it punches you in the heart every single time. You just lose it. The future is bittersweet. And we've got to roll with the punches. Even the ones that hurt. And for everyone that hurts, there's one that helps. We all come back. This is the best trilogy in existence. And I don't care what anyone says. Um, I avoid... No spoilers for Toy Story 4 whatsoever. No spoilers, okay? But... I avoided discussing it in my podcast because something about that one just is not the same. It's not great, but it's not terrible. One thing I will say is that the animation has improved even further over the nine years between the third and the fourth. But yeah, I think the first three, at the very least, are going to stand the test of time as the go-to children's films, right next to The Wizard of Oz. So yeah, 
I believe I have come to the end of another episode, I regret to say. Although, I've said as much as I can for this episode, and I'm very, very, very happy with it. Okay? So yeah. I would like to thank a bunch of people right now, and sorry I forgot sorry I forgot one at the start, so I'm just going to add her in. Give me a sec to uh, cue the music for the shoutouts, and three, two, one, here we go! Shoutouts to Elsie Cool, Tessie Cat, Real Sharks aka Riri Shaku, Ashy Slashy, Mary Amber, That Patrick Guy, Liz Slade, and Saved by His Grace 72. Yes! And I would also like to give massive thank yous to every one of you who have supported me, every one of you who have tuned into this podcast, who have listened whenever they wanted. Hell, heck, you can even download it if you want. But honestly, I thank you, and I thank you, and I am grateful for you, and I wish you nothing but the best. You can achieve your goal. Oh, you're one of us. You're always part of the Film Geek Collective. You're always welcome at the Film Geek Collective. Don't you forget it. Okay, peace out. And three, two, one, end.